Architects and AEC professionals, it's time to connect, grow, and redefine your professional journey. Imagine a place where you're part of a vibrant community, accessing resources tailored to your needs, and earning continuing education credits effortlessly. That place is here at Gable Media. Join our legacy membership, your exclusive pass to a world of opportunities. With instant access to all our CE courses and groundbreaking content, you're set to excel. And here's the game changer. Lock in your legacy membership at an unbeatable introductory price of just $29 per year, forever. Plus, enjoy contests, events, and unique freebies. But hurry, I hear this special pricing won't last long. Spots in our legacy membership are limited and filling up fast. Follow the link in the show notes to be part of something groundbreaking with Gable Media. We simplified things so people would not get bogged down with a million numbers, and uh, they understood the basics. And that, I think, is one of the main reasons why we were able to get more profitable. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm HOK. This is Build Smart. Patrick shares stories from his remarkable 50-year career at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO of the company. With themes of leadership, finance, people, culture, and so much more, you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to Build Smart. In our last episode, Patrick shared fascinating stories about a period of rapid growth for HOK, including their international expansion. He discussed how things began to unravel for the firm, and he expanded on his thoughts and examples of growth strategies for an architecture firm. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes in order to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to design a world-class architecture firm. In today's episode, we pick up with Patrick's story as he is promoted to a firm-wide role. He shares his simple financial metrics and discusses the adoption of new technologies. episode, we talked a lot about how you are rising up through the firm and uh, gaining a little bit more leadership. And now you've joined the HOK Executive Committee, the XCOM. So when did you join the XCOM and what was your role there? Yes, well, it was an exciting time for me. And I was clearly the youngest member of the XCOM. And that, that happened in 1995. I, I had joined HOK in 1967. So that was uh, almost 30 years in. And again, the XCOM or executive committee was the, the top leadership group in the firm. So I joined, I was excited about it. And then I actually was disappointed because I thought I would have more of an influence but I was the new kid on the block <laughs> yeah, and impatient. And uh, I had seen, I had observed and uh, watched the firm struggle with growth of new offices and new uh, market practices and saw the erosion of HOK culture. So I, I began to ask questions and suggest things, assert myself in the ECOM. And one of the things that I talked about was, I said, you know, technology is here to stay. It's uh, going to be a fact of life. 
uh, I was intensely interested in what the computer could do to help us design and produce better work. So like in, in many committees or organizations, if you put your hand up and say, I think we need to study something, <laughs> uh, I got assigned to study it. This period was a very exciting time, not only for the profession, but for the world. It was a transformative era where the masses were increasingly more interested in computers and the World Wide Web. Computer and internet browser companies were subsequently in arms races to take hold of the emerging market. New electronics like the PlayStation gaming system and DVD format were introduced, email was developed, and businesses like Match.com, Amazon, and eBay were born. Several trends that were gaining traction for years had finally coalesced at that exact time, 1995. In the architectural profession, there was a seismic shift occurring, a transition from hand drawing on paper to computer-aided drafting. Uh, HOK wasn't without computers. In fact, we had a mishmash of computers. Uh, HOK had actually developed, again, part of this innovation that the firm fostered. HOK had actually hired some programmers and, and created a program called HOK Draw. And HOK Draw was a very good early design tool. It wasn't really a drafting tool. It was about designing. And it was pushed by Guillaume Abada himself. And HOK Draw was, by today's standards, you wouldn't think much, but it was quite revolutionary. It took Unix servers to run it. They were expensive. And if you were a large office, you maybe got one server and a couple of stations, workstations. And so we used computers, but it was really a specialty within the office. A person, usually young, that learned, that got interested and learned how to use it was greatly in demand. But I saw that that would have to change, that everybody would finally be using computers. In addition to the workstations on Unix, we also had secretaries and accountants using computers. And it was a mix of PCs and Macs. Now, why would we do that? Well, we did it because one office liked PCs. Maybe the head accountant in an office liked the Mac. And so each office did separate purchasing. And by then, you know, HOK had multiple offices scattered around. So people were left to devise their own system. A few of the advanced offices had also bought something called a voicemail system. There was no unity. So I took this assignment very seriously. I brought in three people to help me that knew more about technology than I and peppered them with a million questions and got myself educated. And I learned really interesting things like, you know, everybody in the firm needs a computer, everybody. Even the person that makes the coffee needs a computer. It was a revolutionary idea in the mid-90s. And they should either have a computer at their desk or for a few very special road warrior people, they should have a laptop computer, which were more expensive. And instead of having Unix and uh, Windows and, and uh, Macs, we should really settle in one operating system. Why? Well, because it'll make it much easier for people to work and administer the work and for the IT people that we didn't have yet to actually uh, support the work of the firm. And we settled on Windows 
for one reason and one reason only, that Windows supported AutoCAD and many of the other emerging CAD programs, and Macs did not. The Unix uh, workstations were eventually mostly phased out. There's some interesting things that happened in this transition. One is that the people that had their Macs were in love with them. And it was quite difficult to get people to give up a Mac and go to what they thought was a very clunky Windows device. Other recommendations we made. We needed a local area network in each office, meaning that people in different desks could work on the same project and access the same files. And we needed, for the first time in the firm's history, a wide area network to bind all the offices together as one company. And we also needed a website. Instead of printing up brochures and mailing them to clients, we needed to put on our business cards and so on, here's where you can find out about us. And we also said we needed an intranet where HR and, and uh, other information that was useful for employees could be placed. And we needed to take our 20,000 Kodachrome and Ektachrome slides of our work mm. that we used for presentations, send them out to uh, scanning services to become digitized, cleaned up, color corrected, and put on a server so that everybody in the firm could get access to all the firm's images. So it was all new and exciting actually for all of us that were working on this study. Well, I took this idea back to the executive committee, the XCOM, and Jerry Sinkoff, who was the CEO at the time said, well, how much is this going to cost? <laughs> and I said, well, Jerry, and we think it, it'll take us five years to implement it all. We called it, of course, Tech 2000. I said, Jerry, it's going to cost us $5 million to start. Pat, that's a lot of money. I said, Jerry, yes, it is. But actually, the people are the things that cost us the money. People are expensive. Technology is relatively cheap. And giving people good computer technology is the equivalent of giving them good sharp pencils and good pieces of paper to work on. So the executive committee approved the idea and then gave me the job of selling it around the firm. And I took that as a road show. I first went to the board of directors and made a presentation with some help from my colleagues that had helped me put it together. And then went around to some of the larger offices and made the same presentation. Mostly it was accepted, but it, it was accepted with some rules that weren't, that weren't appropriate. People in one office said, well, we, okay, we think that's a good idea, but we'll do the ordering of the computers and the software. And we'll order them when we can and when we can afford it and so on. So we had a central idea about technology, but a decentralized implementation strategy, which took us some time before we were able to actually correct. It seems that a recurring theme in this series of podcast episodes is the idea of the autonomy of each office coming into conflict with the central control of the firm. And here's another example of that. Yes, it's exactly what it is. So we found we had a good idea. We put out a clear plan, but left it to each office to implement. And each office leadership, primarily the managing principal, some were collaborative and wanted to know 
exactly what to buy and when. And uh, some offices were not collaborative. Some leased their computers. In those days, uh, software was primarily purchased, unlike today when it's basically rented. We had every possible combination of the implementation, but it was a start. We had one person in the, who was an accountant, I believe, who quit because we took her Mac away. She just couldn't <laughs> stand to work without a Mac. I know, I know some people like that. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, they're fiercely loyal, and I, I, I get it. I understand it. I have an iPhone myself. It, you, you'd have a hard time getting me to give up my iPhone. Um, we had several of the people that were in secretarial positions that had Macs. We had one woman I know kept her Mac. We gave her permission. She said, I'm afraid I will lose something. So I'd like to keep my Mac on my desk because she had two computers, a Mac and a PC side by side for about a year before she got the confidence to give up her Mac. The people that were using HOK Draw on the Unix and a later version, HOK Draw Vision it was called, um, that worked on PCs, those people continued on for some years. It took us probably a good, well, it was a five-year plan, but it probably took us six or seven before everybody was on Windows and there was no question about it. And you adopted AutoCAD? We did adopt AutoCAD, uh, although, you know, the clients are always right. So we had some clients in some offices that said, well, we want to use Bentley. And uh, I think we had one that wanted to use Graphisoft. So we were always willing to do what the clients wanted. And that's true today. If the client wants something delivered in some format, that's fine. We were just happy to get started with technology. We did have a few older employees who I think decided to retire early instead of learning the computer. These were people that were close to retirement. They were just too much of a change. I thrived on it. I loved it from the first moment that I got my first PC and uh, found that it was so much better at remembering things and adding numbers together and uh, doing things that us poor humans are really not that good at. And it, I felt liberated because it allowed me to do the thinking and it did the calculating. So from the very beginning, I was very happy with this transition. So that moment in time in our profession, looking back is a very exciting time. It was a, it was a major transformation of the profession. But at the time, those people who grew up doing things the way they always did them, that transition is scary and difficult and complicated and puts roadblocks in front of the things that they're trying to accomplish. Yes. Um, and we, we, there were a lot of one-on-one -on -one private little counseling sessions that went on in various offices, primarily with the older. This is a really generational thing. Younger employees seem to take to it easily. Older employees struggled with it because, well, they had spent their whole life learning how to be a perfect draftsman. So old habits die hard, and uh, it's, it's difficult for older people, I think. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. I, I personally think you can, but it takes more work. Yeah. The other thing that happened at the same time, and I'll just touch on this, I was invited to join a private consortium sponsored by a man that became a very good friend of mine that led to the creation of 
what is today called Building Smart, happened the same year, 1995, where 12 companies came together as sponsored by not so much Autodesk, but a very enlightened employee of Autodesk, Ian Howell, who saw uh, that people were struggling to use software across platforms. The architect software and the engineer software weren't fully compatible. Yes, you could transmit information back and forth, but not all the data. And between the architect, engineer, and contractor, it was the same, and the subcontractors. And so this group was put together privately. Each company invested in uh, some time and some work effort to see if we could develop a way to fully exchange data between platforms. And the original name for this group was the International Alliance for, wait for it, interoperability. <laughs> I had never heard of that word. We used to joke that if you could spell it, we'll make you an officer in the group. Yeah, it rolls right off your tongue. Interoperability <laughs> is basically my computer can fully talk and exchange information with yours using your program. And that little group, after one year of study, I think Autodesk wanted us to say, well, thank you very much. Now we'll just build products around this idea, products for the architect, the engineer, and the contractor, and they'll all be interoperable. And our group, I think, very uh, enlightened group said, well, no, we don't actually think that that's the right answer. We think the right answer is that you can't possibly know what kinds of software you're going to need in the future or what will be created that you'll absolutely want to have. And we want all of these to work together, plug and play. So what we want is an open protocol. We want this interoperable layer between softwares to be open. And that became the main product of Building Smart, which is the IFC, the Industry Foundation Classes. And we're working on version 5.0 as I speak today, which allows anybody with an idea about making a little piece of software to help an architect, an engineer, a contractor, or a building owner do something, can write it with a proper interface to IFCs, and they can collaborate with any software out there. That's the promise of it. And uh, it's an idea whose origins were, I think we were way ahead of our time. This is even before the internet was going. But this eventually became a big idea out in the world. And uh, Building Smart today has chapters in, I think at last count, 26 countries. There are thousands, literally thousands of people working, mostly as volunteers with a very small paid coordination group, a mostly volunteer effort that has to be broad-based in order to create these standards for how you make these connections. And it's not only connections between software, it's digitizing, making standard digital models of workflows. But that was the other thing that was exciting for me at that time. So I was new on the XCOM. I just uh, led the effort to get the company started on a journey toward the full use of technology. And I got involved with Building Smart and continue as this to this day as the international chairman. Rising up through the ranks at HOK, becoming a leader, joining the XCOM, planting several seeds for the firm that will blossom later and turn into other things, continuing to grow in leadership, you eventually became the chief operating officer, the COO, 
Tell us how you became the COO of HOK. I became COO as a, as a result of getting into trouble. <laughs> uh, I was uh, always outspoken, and I, I spoke my mind at the XCOM meetings. And I think I really irritated some of the people there because they kept saying, we're not good enough. We're not making enough consistency in their profitability. We're not collecting money fast enough. And I was always the one that was bringing this up. And uh, uh, it was quite irritating, especially to our CEO, who was a very patient man. But finally, finally, he he had the HR director, who was a very dear friend of all of us, uh, John Mann. John called me to St. Louis. I was in San Francisco at the time, as I still am. Took me to a nice Italian restaurant, bought a nice bottle of red wine, and over dinner, gave me a little uh, half Dutch uncle talk and half inspirational speech and said, you know, Patrick, you've got a lot of potential. You could be the next CEO of this company, but you're a real pain in the ass. You're always <laughs> complaining about stuff and always bringing up these things and making other people uncomfortable. And it's not as if it's not correct, but the way you do it just leaves no room for any honest dialogue. Basically, I was being too pushy. So he said, so what I, what I want to do with you, Patrick, is I want to send you to uh, executive coaching. And executive coaching was, as it is today, basically getting an individual coach for an upcoming leader uh, who would observe them at work and then give them a series of exercises to do, take some tests, and have a lot of dialogue. Where, how did you, how did you um, respond to that? Were you offended by that or did you embrace it? I said, oh, you mean you want to send me to charm school? That's what <laughs> I called it. Actually, I was happy to embrace it because John Mann was quite clever. The way he put it is you don't need charm school just because you're such a hard-edged guy to be around. We need charm school because you might have another couple of career steps to make. So he gave me some goals to work toward with no promises, but when it was out there that, oh, you might be the next CEO. So John Mann found me a really great guy in San Francisco who came to the office while I was working and sat in a chair in the corner and didn't say anything to anybody, just watched and listened. He did that for two days. After two days, then I went to his office, office in the home, and he laid out what he saw. And he had me take some tests, basically to tell you what kind of a personality you have. And after I took the test, I had scored very high on the aggressive uh, side of my personality. And they had some synonyms that would describe the person that, that I was. And one of them was bullheaded. I thought, well, gee, I, am I really bullheaded? I don't think so. Well, at the bottom of the test, it said, if you don't feel this is you, go home and ask a loved one what they think. So I was really puzzled. So I, I went home and uh, the first person I saw was, was our daughter, Elizabeth. And I said, Elizabeth, do you think of me as bullheaded? And Elizabeth is a very clever, smart young lady. She said, why no daddy, I think of you as bald-headed. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfect because it was a joke and I laughed, but it also helped me to understand, well, yes, I'm very smart. I can, I can figure stuff out. Not everybody's going to figure stuff out like I can, 
And if I'm going to be effective, I need to take the time with people to bring them along and make them part of the solution, not just bark out orders. It's a real lesson in leadership that I was taught. And my coach and I worked together for maybe six months. And finally, he said, well, I think you've graduated. The main thing you have to remember is to slow down and take the time with people to explain why something is important and engage them in developing the solutions. Don't just tell them, this is what I want you to do, because that doesn't work. So it's really the difference between leading and managing is what I had to learn, let's say, the refinements of in how I presented myself to other people. Not long after I finished with my executive coaching, HOK, the executive committee, appointed me the chief operating officer, the COO of HOK. We had never had one. Now we had a COO, we had a CEO, and uh, we still had a lead designer, but a COO was deemed to be important because we had to have leadership that would grow up to take on the, the big firm that we had become. And so I became the COO, and uh, that was the beginning of another whole adventure. As COO, your responsibility is to look at the operations of the firm, to see how it works, the things that are working and the things that are not working. Um, and you really dug into the financials at HOK, and, and as it is with many architecture firms and creative professionals, this is not a, a place that too many architects want to pay attention to is to finance. Yes. I see that all the time in, in, in the work that I do. And so that was one of the focuses that you put on your job and established some rules, some financial rules that you created for HOK. Do you want to walk us through some of those? Yes, of course. Um, all of us that ran offices or that, that, that were project managers that ran, ran projects knew something about fees and collecting money and so on. Um, but at the office level and at the firm-wide level, the financials were really handled by the accountants. And that seems logical. The accountants are all about money. Well, accountants have their own accountant speak, just like architects have architects speak. And each month, all everybody that ran an office at HOK got a big, thick book. And it was still on paper in those days with a comb binding. It must have been an inch and a half thick. And in it would be page after page after page of reports of how this project did and how that project did and what the collections were. And they were all, if you really wanted to study something, you had to have a lot of time and you had to flip through pages to find the information you wanted. The other thing the accountants did is they made every number to the penny. So it was $5,355,927.82. And you show a bunch of big column of numbers like that, most human beings glaze over, including architects. And um, what I found was that people that were running the offices that were responsible for financial performance didn't understand actually what they were to do. A little simple example, an office is not making a profit. I would have a meeting with the office leadership and say, you need to cut your cost because your fees are this and your, your spending is that. The first thing they would do is look at office supplies. Buy fewer pencils. Yes, buy fewer <laughs> pencils, a little less paper. Maybe we can use both sides of the paper next time. 
And uh, it was clear to me that they didn't understand uh, the proportion of things. What do you mostly pay for? Well, they, most people had a vague idea that it was people, but because of the accounting system we used, the people cost was divided up and chopped up into pieces. And I think this is true for many firms. There are people that are doing overhead work, secretaries and accountants, people like that, IT people. So there's an overhead bucket that they're in. And there are people that are doing project work and they're in another bucket. And there are other people that are doing marketing and they're in a different bucket. And the people that are doing the projects have this thing called a multiplier that's applied to their direct personnel expense, whatever that means. And so the truth of what you could afford in the way of total employees in an office was missing. So I went to St. Louis and I sat with the CFO and the controller, two very good friends of mine, Bob Pratzel and Tim Tynan. And we took probably the better part of a week. I said, there's got to be some way to get an, an idea about how many people can I afford to have in my office if my fees are $1, $100, or a $1 million. And after studying it for a while, and I said, you know, don't give me this direct personnel expense stuff. What does that mean? It's an artificial construct made up for the accountants. What I know in my office is I know what people are paid. I know what their salary is. So can we please get a ratio of how much salary I can afford based on how much fee I'm earning? And after a week, we came up with a number, 50%. That means if I have an annual fees of a million dollars, my annual payroll in salaries is half a million dollars. Very simple. Yeah, the 50% rule was something that I was absolutely for as well. You know, the problem I had with HOK in the early days of our being involved with uh, the managing of the, of the finances of the company, it wasn't good in terms of what we were trying to achieve. And uh, the 50% uh, rule was something that uh, looked at our profit margins, which we had never really looked at before. And uh, it was clearly a, the right thing, to, a right thing to do. So for the first time we had that tool and I presented it to the board of directors and uh, it took a couple of months for it to sink in. I finally began to have 50% rule reporting at the board where the accountants would say the, the office in St. Louis had a 50% rule number of 58% and the one in Dallas had 51%. And the numbers were so illuminating. People that were at 50% and less were making money. And people that were a little bit over 50% were making less money. And people that were at 60% weren't making any money. It was very clear all of a sudden. Then it was easier for me to go to an office and say, you know, your fees are running at a million dollars. Your payroll needs to be a half a million. And you have to find a way to get your payroll to half a million or Get your fees up by being more effective at your marketing work. And that began to actually work. It was still spotty because some offices didn't seem to want to do this anyway. But it was a, it was a beginning. The next big one had to do with collecting money. Architects love to design. They love to serve clients. They're not really excited about collecting money. Sending out the bill, well, that's an accountant's job. Can't the accountants collect the money too? 
And the way HOK was operating at the time when I became COO is that once you build the client, once you accrued your fee, then you have earned it. I, I just build a client for $1,000. So I have now earned $1,000 of fee, even though the client hasn't paid me yet. That's called accrual accounting. What's the difference between that and cash accounting? Cash accounting says, I don't count that fee as earned until they pay me, until the $1,000 check comes and it's deposited into my bank and clears. Then it's earned. Well, most architects work on a cash basis for spending. When I pay my payroll every two weeks, that's cash. I have to pay people with a check. But when I earn fees from a client, I have to have some idea that I'm going to collect that money. Otherwise, I'm playing a game with myself. So that's the difference between accrual and cash. And HOK used an accrual system for income, like most firms. We were just drifting. Our fees were going up and our, our profits were staying flat. And we'd have uh, arguments with offices about whether or not they, uh, we should be reserving their receivables that were, that were getting old. And then there would be negotiations with the office. Well, you know, the client pr promised me that they'd pay by next Tuesday. Can't you just let it slip a little bit? We were driving our accounting, central accounting staff crazy with this. Every late payment was a negotiation instead of with a rule. So I, again, I went to St. Louis, I sat with Pratzel and Tynan, and we came up with the 90 day rule. And 90 days is actually quite generous. From the moment you send out your bill, you have 90 days to collect it. So if you send it out January the 1st, March 1st, April 1st, May 1st, that's 90 days. If you collect the money before 90 days, that's fine. Your accrual earnings has become cash. If you don't collect it in 90 days, it is unearned. Ooh, unearned. That's a big blow to an office that's striving to earn fees and make a profit. So once we put the 90-day rule into place that said we're going to just unearn it, somebody asked at the board meeting where I proposed this, well, what happens if we pass the 90-day mark and it's unearned and then and 93rd day we collect it? I said, well, the next accounting cycle will re-earn it. You'll get it put back on your books. This had a transformative effect. Now offices knew that they had 90 days to turn an accrual earning into a cash earnings. And uh, since the 90 day rule was adopted, 90 days is still a long time. You know, I don't think your local vendors or certainly your credit card company won't let you sl slack for 90 days. So um, an industry-wide average for the AE profession is probably closer to 60. And HOK has been now, once this discipline was was instilled uh, is regularly under the industry average for collections. It's always a struggle though. And if clients don't pay, there's usually a good reason. Sometimes clients are deadbeats, but a lot of times, if you really listen to what clients have to say, they're unhappy. You didn't do something. So you can use that as a positive by going to the client and saying, you haven't paid us. We know something's wrong. Let's have a conversation. Let's straighten this out. The other big piece that um, offices did not understand is how do I know if I have enough work 
again, I met with Pratzel and Tyner. We went through a lot of records and came up with what we called the 10 month rule. The top line, as we walked down our profit and loss statement at the board meeting, we certainly needed to concern ourselves with, with the backlog because uh, we were trying to forecast where we're going to go in terms of volume of work. And uh, uh, the backlog was the, was the top way to do that. I need to have about 10 months worth of earnings as backlog. Let's say I'm earning a million dollars a month. I need to have a $10 million backlog. If, if I do, my firm is not growing and it's not shrinking. It's staying about the same. If the backlog slips below 10 months worth, maybe instead of having 10 million, I have 9 million a backlog. It's still a lot, but I, that's a danger signal. You're in danger of shrinking. If I have more than 10 million, if I have 11 or 12 or 15 million, I am growing. And we have to plan for growth. So that 10-month rule was another simple metric that people could keep in their heads. If my fees are a million dollars a month, I need 10 million in my backlog. That is work that is under contract, not work that's been won, but work where the client has actually signed a contract and, and agreed to pay us a fee for the service we perform. So those three metrics got to be reported at the board meetings and the board remember was expanded. Uh, we had now all the offices represented in the board and all the big market groups. So everybody was made aware of this all at, at every month. And uh, the other thing we did at the board meetings is I told Prattle and the accountants quit sending out these big, thick financial summary books. It's meaningless boil everything down to, uh, to a couple of Excel sheets that give them the basics. So what do, what do I mean by basics? Well, I want my fees that I earn not to the penny, but maybe to the nearest thousand dollars, just so it's easier to read. And let's put all the offices on one sheet so we can compare. It's like a horse race every month, Atlanta, Dallas, and so on and so on, all the way down. They all can see how they did and how they did compared to what they said they would do. We did the same thing with the sheet for profits. We did the same thing with the sheet for backlog. And we did the same thing with the sheet for collections. How many collection days do I have by average? And the funny thing that happens is when it's made simple so that people can understand it, people can get it and they see their neighbors, their colleagues that are doing better. That's a powerful incentive. I think all these these rules that we had after we educated the offices uh, about the business concepts that they needed to be aware of, and uh, and then we could establish accountability. Nobody wants to be the low man on the totem pole. Everybody wants to be at the top. So it had a salutary effect. It wasn't enough, but it was a beginnings of improving the way we work and our capacity to improve ourselves. So some significant changes around this time. You move into this COO position, start working on the financials. There's some other seismic shifts in leadership right around this time. So tell us about that. Yes. Um, and again, firms need to plan for this. We planned for uh, leadership changes. And in this case, we did, but it didn't really work as well as it should have. 
King Graff retired. King was, the, if you'll recall, the George Helmuth uh, assistant. So the marketing leader. That was the marketing leader, yes. The original founder of HOK, George Papa George Helmuth, passed away at age, gee, he was in his about 90, had a good full long life. He had worked until the last four or five years of his life, loved the work, loved HOK. Uh, By then, he was long since having an influence in the firm, but uh, that meant that two out of the three founders were then uh, deceased, and only Gio Obata was still around. He was busily consulting and being a designer in the firm, but didn't have ownership, uh, didn't have any stock. And then finally, uh, maybe the most significant is Jerry Sinkoff retired. Jerry was the CEO, and uh, when he retired, he didn't appoint a new CEO. By tradition in HOK, people get to choose their successors, the leadership. And later, when I interviewed Jerry for the book, I asked him about this. And he said, Patrick, I just decided not to decide. (laughs) And I think this is purely speculation on my part. but I think there was still some, uh, maybe some charm school work to to still do. But Jerry was concerned that uh, I wouldn't be the right person. I was certainly in the running. But there were several others on the executive committee that might have might have been in that been appointed, but nobody was appointed. So we had no CEO when Jerry stepped down. Bill Valentine, who was the president of HOK and the design leader, was the nominal leader of the firm and of the executive committee. And that was I've called this various things the Valentine interregnum, the <laughs> period of time when Bill Valentine ran the firm and he did a he did a good job of it. The things were in place then for some great big problems to emerge not too long after Jerry had left. So let's talk about some of the lessons in this episode. What are the lessons we should be taking away for this one? And they're good lessons. Uh, the first one is that technology is not a fad. It's, it's here to stay and not just here to stay, but it's continually evolving. So your business needs to be evolving with it and leveraging technology to make your business work better. And it's, you need to pay attention to that, not just leave it to some IT leader. I think good architects need to be need to know enough to make good choices and decisions about technology. Second one is invest in upcoming leaders, people like I was. You know, don't throw people away just because maybe they need to have the rough edges smoothed off. There are people that are fantastic, good people that just need a little tuning up. And so investing in leadership training or executive coaching is always a good idea before you give up on a merging leader. That again goes right back to Helmut's original principles, which is attract and keep good people and give them an opportunity to grow up and learn inside your firm. Third one is, build really simple financial metrics to measure how you're doing as a firm. If you let the accountants do it, they will do accountant speak and God bless them. We need accountants. I can remember um, Tynan at Pratzel when I said, I don't want any decimal points and pennies. I want thousands, but we need that for the audit. I said, well, when you prepare reports for the auditor, go ahead and do it to the penny. But when you prepare a report for the board of directors, for God's sake, Make it to the nearest $1,000, that'd be close enough. And uh, never neglect, never let your operations get out of control. 
good operations, they're not sexy, they're not exciting to people that want to design great work, but they sure do help to keep the lights on and the bills paid and your employees paid. And if you neglect it, you can get yourself into trouble and many firms failed because they've neglected operations. As we'll see in future episodes. Yes, indeed. Fasten your seatbelt, actually. (laughs) (laughs) To continue the story, come back next week for the next episode of Build Smart. Seeds of trouble have blossomed into full crisis. In fact, triple crises for HOK. Patrick will share tools for leading your firm through crisis. Tools that can apply to any firm, anytime, anywhere. And Pratzel's phone rings, his cell phone. He's gotten a call from Tim Tynan. Tim is the controller in our accounting group. Tim Tynan says, I just got a call from the bank. They urgently want to meet with the three of you and me right now. Not tomorrow, not next week, right now. Oh my God, what have we done? Thank you for listening. To read along and see illustrations and personal photos that accompany this series, get Patrick's book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. I encourage you to go grab a copy today and follow along as we continue the story. It's available now at gablemedia.com slash buildsmartbook. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day I, i i don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? 
Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.